We shall now take our reading from Philippians 1, 12 to 26. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but we have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am turned between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is a classic story of the journey of a man from his home on earth to the beautiful destination, the celestial city. And the main character's name is Christian. And the story is actually a picture of the Christian life, an allegory. And one of the most powerful scenes in Pilgrim's Progress is where Christian and his friend Hopeful have strayed from the path and gone into some fields where they shouldn't have gone. And they've become exhausted and they take a dangerous nap in the field. And they shouldn't be sleeping there because they've wandered into the, the land and the territory of a cruel giant. This giant is called Despair. Despair, giant despair catches them and he imprisons them in Doubting Castle. So you can kind of get a sense of how this works. You know, despair takes you into the Doubting Castle. You get trapped there. And this is what it says. The giant drove them before him and put them into his castle, into a very dark dungeon. Nasty and stinking to the spirits of these two men. Here then they lay from Wednesday morning until Sunday night, without one bit of bread or drop of drink or light or any to ask how they did. They were therefore here in evil case and were far from friends and acquaintances. Now in this place, Christian had double sorrow because it was through his unadvised counsel that they were brought into this distress. Now that's a picture of something that can happen in our lives. By our own foolish decisions, we can end up in despair. But you know, there are other giants, plenty of other giants that we have to face in life. And they're not always our fault. 
things come in that we didn't invite things that we we didn't they weren't necessarily things we caused and i want to just talk today about four giants that most of us if not all of us will face at some stage to think them about them with you and then to see how our text engages with them magnificently here are these four giants hardship betrayal failure and death hardship betrayal failure and death and each one of these presents its own challenges to the Christian life. Hardship. Many people live in financial hardship, if not in actual poverty. Last year, the Guardian newspaper reported on a study by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation that one in five people in the UK are in poverty. That's 14 million people. Many are just weeks away, just a few weeks away from a terrible financial crisis. And that's the UK, one of the richest and most advanced industrial economies in the world. What about the rest of the world? One of the terrible things about giant hardship is that once he gets you in his clutches, it's very hard to escape. Where do you turn when you're trapped in hardship and you have no resources to draw on and no people to turn to? It's crushing. The second giant I want to think about is betrayal. And this isn't to do with our outward circumstances, but something that's deeply intimate and personal. Probably one of the most dreadful giants in our lives is the awful experience that someone you loved and trusted has violated your trust. They've gone behind your back in some way. They've betrayed you. It is deeply emotionally wounding. And some of those wounds never heal in this life. Somehow something is violated in your person. Charles Spurgeon, the Victorian preacher, said to his students, one crushing stroke has sometimes laid the minister very low. The brother most relied upon becomes a traitor. Ten years of toil do not take so much life out of us as we lose in a few hours by betrayal. Betrayal in a marriage, betrayal in a friendship, betrayal in in a workplace environment is is a crushing giant the third giant i want us to think about is failure failure i wonder how we cope with this because surely it will come to all of us in one form or another we all have hopes and uh, anticipations and dreams for our lives and you know our culture says you can be whatever you want to be you can have whatever you want to have just dream and reach out and somehow make it happen. But as time goes by, and I guess the older you get, the more you realise that 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 is pretty much a lie. Some aspirations are just beyond us. Some hopes are crushed. We haven't measured up to our own standards, our own aspirations for what we wanted to be. How do we cope with failure? And then finally, death, the last giant, it comes to even the strongest and healthiest of us. But, you know, in this culture, we tend to live in denial of it. We don't see death. It's not talked about in polite company. We're not familiar and acquainted with it. it we, we sort of imagine that it's going to be put off forever. You kind of see that in some of the way we talk about COVID. You know, somebody died who was 92 years old and they think, oh, if only they hadn't got COVID, they wouldn't, they wouldn't have died. Well, death is coming to all of us. How will we respond when it comes near? How can we live so that these four giants 
When they enter our lives, don't crush us. These four things that will come and can come and take away our confidence and our, our life. Now, in this passage today, we see the Apostle Paul facing these same four giants and he is not crushed by them. And it's the most extraordinary picture of a different way of life, the Christian way of life. Hardship, betrayal, failure and death. I'm going to just go around those and, and, and look at them and bring them into our passage and see how Paul faces them. Firstly, there's hardship. Have a look at verse 13. He says here, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. He is in prison, a, a prison that's run by the Romans. Now, we don't know where he was. It could have been in Rome itself. It could have been in uh, Ephesus or, or another location. But Paul was in prison more than once. And that meant a situation of great discomfort. It meant most likely not being provided with food. It meant being, he says, in chains. It could well have meant literally being chained to a Roman guard. And here it's the palace guard or the Praetorian guard. Tough Roman soldiers and he is manacled there. Hardship. Then there's betrayal. This gets worse. Verses 15 to 17, he talks about Christians who are preaching. They're preaching about Jesus and they're doing so while Paul is on the, the inside of the prison. And he says... It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defence of the gospel. But the former, verse 17, preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Well, that is extraordinary. There are people, supposed brothers of Paul, who are out there, free, free to do their work, and they're doing ministry with bad motives. They preach Jesus, but it's out of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition, even trying to stir up tr more trouble for Paul while he's in chains. Then there's failure. Just think about it. Paul's great calling from God, his life's work, is to take the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, to the places where it, Jesus is not known. Paul says, Elsewhere in, in, in Romans, I, it's always been my ambition to preach Christ where he is not known, not built on someone else's foundation. He poured himself into this incredible mission given by God, his, his ministry to the Gentiles, to take the, the word of God to the non-Jews. And yet at this moment, he's in prison and it looks like his career may well have just ended or be about to end because of the fourth giant, death. Verses 20 to 21 makes it very clear. Just look at this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will be in no way ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. It could come to that. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knows that this arraignment, this trial that he's facing could end in a death sentence. Roman justice could be very harsh indeed. It could be the end. So here he is, just kind of try to get it in your mind's eye. This man, this little Jewish man, this ball of energy and dynamism, and he's, he's chained to a soldier. And he's hearing reports about Christian supposed brothers 
stirring up trouble for him outside. And his, his, his great mission could be ended and he may soon be executed by the state. And not only is he not crushed by these circumstances, he is full of joy. <laughs> He's full of joy. We thought about it last week. Philippians is the champagne of the New Testament. He's full of joy. I always pray with joy when I think of you. I have you in my heart. I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And Philippians is the letter of joy. We're going to find this over and over again. Now, this is not a kind of stoic, you know, uh, stiff upper lip, chin up, um, you know, grin and bear it. Uh, just, just grit your teeth and endure. He's very real. Uh, he's not going into denial and just sort of pretending, oh, no, everything's fine. It's very, there are real emotions here. Uh, in the next chapter, chapter 2, verse 27, really interesting moment where he talks about this guy, Epaphroditus, has come to visit him in prison. And he says, you know, Epaphroditus was actually very ill. He could have died and almost did. But God had mercy on him and he recovered. And Paul says, God um, had mercy on me as well to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. It would have been so heartbreaking if, if this good friend, if Paphroditus had died. I've got sorrow, Paul says. It would, have, it would have been sorrow upon sorrow. So he knew what it was to be in sorrow, to live with sorrow, and yet to be full of joy at the same time. Not crushed. Paul knew what it was to be in severe distress. In one of his other letters, 2 Corinthians, he says, we despaired even of life itself. This joy is not a matter of feeling just happy and gleeful all the time. But it is something deep, welling up, that means whatever the circumstances, you are not crushed. How is this possible? I think it's because Paul has a definition of life that enables him to face everything. He has a, a definition of life that enables him to face anything. And here it is. You ready for this? Verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Jesus Christ and to die is gain, is profit. Now that is a total redefinition of what life is all about. And it is actually very practical. It is not just wishful thinking. Because this definition of life transforms Paul's reaction to all the circumstances that he's facing. It doesn't change the circumstances. It doesn't get him out of prison. It doesn't stop the, the rivalry of, of people outside. It doesn't suddenly you know, make him financially prosperous. The circumstances don't change, but he changes on the inside. And that means he is actually astonishingly resilient. Because he can see the, the hand of God, the plan of God in any and every situation. So to live is Christ, to live for Jesus. And to die, well, that would be a great reward. It would be gain. So I want to come back to those four giants again and just look at them through Paul's eyes with Paul's spectacles on and see how this redefinition of life has affected his posture, his, his attitude, his heart towards those four giants of hardship, betrayal, failure, death. Okay, hardship. Yes, prison life is tough. But Paul says... He's seeing the good news advance inside and outside the prison because he's in prison. Look at it again, verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. 
As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. You see, inside the prison, there are these hard-bitten Praetorian guards, tough professional soldiers, men's men, pagan worshippers. Think Russell Crowe in Gladiator. You know, th- these are the kind of people we're talking about. They have a tattoo on their arm. They just carve it off with a bit of sharp stone they found on the floor. They don't normally go to church, talk about their feelings and play guitars and sing songs with their eyes shut. They don't call each other bro. These are hard-bitten men, but one by one they are going into a prison cell with a little Jewish guy and being chained to him. And they find themselves being chained to the most persuasive Christian communicator in history. You just imagine the situation. The next one comes in, puts the manacle on and Paul (laughs) and says, so Paul, why are you in here? And Paul says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. And so everybody knows, he says, the whole palace guard, it's gone around. that The real reason he's in prison is about this person, Jesus Christ. See, actually being confined has meant more air time and more communication for Paul's gospel. It's not how he would have planned it, but it is serving to advance the good news. Now that's inside the prison, but what about outside? He says there, um, you know, and you can imagine, can't you, the founding leader, the heroic church planter, he's been hauled in by the authorities, he's questioned, he's thrown in jail. What's going to happen to the movement outside? Paul might have feared that his imprisonment was actually going to slow down the advance of the gospel. But in actual fact, verse 14 says that the people outside, the brothers and sisters, have got more bold, more daring, more confident. They've seen how brave he's been. They've seen how resolute he is. They've seen his joy, how strong he is in faith, how confident he is in God's plan. Confident even to share the gospel with soldiers. And so this has spurred them into action and given them fresh courage. And they are less afraid than before. And you know, this has been the story of the Christian church for 2,000 years now. I was just reading yesterday about the church in Cuba uh, under Fidel Castro, one of the worst human rights abusers of the last 50 years. Under Fidel Castro, Christians were terribly treated and there was a crushing attempt to destroy the church. At the beginning of Castro's era, there were about 6,000 members of the Methodist Church in Cuba. 35 years later, there were 50,000 Methodists, Cuban Methodists, and the church was going through a revival in its greatest time of hardship because people get inspired to live for Jesus. It gives them fresh courage. In 2015, a friend of mine was studying at St Andrews University in Scotland. He met an Egyptian monk This guy was a Coptic Christian, massive beard. And this man's community was facing very harsh persecution. And, you know, this is what he said. This is what he said to my friend. We don't fear persecution. We fear relaxation. We fear relaxation because that will make us soft. You see, this is not how Paul would have planned it. It's not how any of us would have planned it. But it's serving the gospel. And let's just think for a moment about COVID and about the pandemic of the last year and about the fact that for the first time in centuries, Christian churches were not able to gather on 
Easter Day or at Christmas? Has it meant that the church has died? Now, the church certainly is being, I would say, refined, challenged. I'd say that, that there's an elements of the church that have peeled off. Uh, some people have become very weak. We know that it's weary and tire- tiring. But actually, what is God doing? We know that he's in control and that through this, more people are actually hearing about the good news of Jesus and being added to his kingdom worldwide. See, these circumstances that seem to turn the, the tables against God always end up being turned back. Yes, Paul says it's hardship, but there's progress. The gospel is advancing. The wave of love that God has unleashed at the cross of Christ is surging through the world and it is unstoppable. And now more people, new people, are hearing the good news. And Paul's heart says, you know, this hardship is worth it. It is worth it. It's not how I would have done it, but God has a plan. So some of us here will find hardship the big giant in our lives. And maybe that's you right now. And it's partly because underneath, you know, we really want comfort. We really want a comfortable life. But friends, we do need a better definition of life than simple comfort. We need to know that to live is Christ. And then to die would be gain. What about betrayal? How much it hurts to be manipulated by somebody, to be cheated on, to be mistreated, to be betrayed. It really hurts. And it's got to hurt Paul when he finds that people who are in churches, maybe even Christians who he knew, are actually actively opposing him outside. They're going around saying slanderous things about him, trying to stir up trouble for him. Uh, It's one of the ugliest spectacles in the world is Christian leaders jockeying for power and behaving like the worst, most cynical politicians. It's dirty. But here's the most incredible thing in this whole incredible chapter. Look at verse 18. Having described this this group who who are preaching out of envy and rivalry, Paul says this, what does it matter? What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. The important thing he says is, not really the motives of those people. I know they've got impure motives, but they are preaching Jesus. And that's great because the message of the gospel is going out. You see, Paul's security is not based on the acceptance and the approval of others. He knows what they're saying about him, but it's not destroying him inside. He doesn't have a kind of fragile ego that's balanced on the bubble of other people's opinion of him and can burst at any moment. He has learned to say, why should I care so much about betrayal? When the eyes of the most important person in the universe look on me with total loyalty and unstoppable love. You know, some of us, perhaps right now, are finding betrayal very painful and hard. Or, as I said earlier, the wounds of betrayal last a very long time. But perhaps those wounds are still fresh for you. And one reason why it's so hard for us is that our hearts, deep down, crave acceptance and security. We want to be safe in relationships with people who love us. Yeah, we need that. That's absolutely right. We're made for that. But, you know, human beings cannot give the security and acceptance that we ultimately need. Only the Lord God can. And so Paul has been prized, his heart's been prized away from living for what other people think of him. And 
attached firmly to that definition of life. To live is Christ. Jesus is the only place I can get that kind of security. And then there's failure. We thought a bit about this, you know, Paul's great mission, his great career, he's an incredible communicator, thinker, organiser, innovator, writer, a dynamo in the early Christian movement that was turning the world upside down. And here he is at the height of his powers and he's on the bench. He's taken off the pitch. He's sitting there in a dugout. He may never come out. And it's got to be deeply frustrating for someone with such passion and energy. This smell of failure. What's going to happen to all his work? You know, some of us find this the big giant, don't we? It's because underneath what we really want is to succeed, just to be someone. We don't mind hardship. We can endure that. Maybe you're the kind of person who can endure anything if you're succeeding. You don't really need approval so much. You'd rather be admired than liked. You've put in years and years into your studies. You've put in years and years of hard work into your career. You've put in years into raising a family and trying to make them great kids. And how quickly it could all be taken away or crumble through your fingers. A good friend of mine was a head teacher. He'd worked for many years. Uh, worked his way up, been a classroom teacher to uh, head of department, deputy head, served as a deputy head for a long time. He finally got his break uh, to be leader of a head teacher at a school that was failing, so a big job, turn, got to turn it around. And he, he, he took the job and got the job. He'd also done extra training, master's degree and so on and so forth. And he was wrongfully sacked, wrongfully sacked after a few months by a move that was completely political. The local authority needed someone who was a scapegoat for the failures of the school. My friend hadn't had time to turn it round, and yet he was called in and given an offer. Uh, we'll pay you off with this much money if you promise you never talk about it again, or you get no money and uh, we'll, we'll besmirch your name. And actually, they then went and spoke to other people to make sure he didn't get a job in the area. Now, that was after years and years of hard work. How devastating, devastated would you be if you lost your career? or you failed in your education, or your children went off the rails. Paul says, in, in the light of potentially his career ending, for me, to live is Christ. He's not saying for me to live is my ministry, or my work, or my success. To live is Christ, just to serve Jesus. And so to die is gain. In other words, I'm confident that God loves me and he's always working for my good. I'm confident that God's kingdom will grow and I can be used in some small way. I can see just a glimpse of it at the moment, just a glimmer of the coming glory. And I'm confident that there's more around the corner. And so Paul concludes, what a privilege it was to be involved in God's glorious kingdom in some tiny way. That's not failure is it? You see how he's redefined failure and success? And what about death, that final enemy, the biggest giant of all? You remember the famous phrase, it is impossible to be sure of anything but death and taxes. The finest human beings who ever lived, death overcame them. Death breaks the strongest of us, it silences the most eloquent voice, it ruins the greatest beauty, it deadens the most brilliant mind. We all bow before death's feet, but not Paul. Look again at his definition. 
For me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's better because dying is to be with Jesus. To die means I will see the lover of my soul. To die means to be made complete as a person, to enjoy the resurrection life that Jesus guarantees his followers in a new creation. To see Jesus face to face and to be like him. This is a destination devoutly to be desired. And for the Christian, it is just around the corner, just behind the veil, when Jesus calls us home to glory. Over the last few years, I had a great privilege of spending a good deal of time with a man called Donald Lees. Donald was a retired academic. He'd served for many years at Manchester University. And by the time I got to know him well, he was well into his 80s and dealing with serious health issues. He had nearly died on more than one occasion. In fact, one time he, I think, had a quadruple heart bypass. Uh, but he survived and uh, lived for another 20 years or so. But he, he knew that death was coming. And the thing that just always struck me about him and amazed me again and again was how calm he would be in talking about death and how he was actually, not in a morbid way, but in a, in a healthy way, looking forward to it because it would be to be with Jesus. I didn't see fear in him. I didn't see panic. One time I took him to the hospital and as we drove up to the hospital, there was a graveyard next to it and he said oh that's good because if I die in there there's not so far to travel. <laughs> you see he had learned this new definition of life. To die was gain and this is what Paul says. Uh, verse 22 and 23 if I'm to go on living in the body that will mean fruitful labour for me. I'll still keep serving Jesus but what should I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ which is better by far, but it's more necessary for you, Philippians, that I remain in the body. It would be better by far to die, to be with Jesus, because of the hope of glory. And so even the giant of death is now robbed of its power to rule us by fear. Death is dethroned. Death is not the king. It's just the doorman opening the door to a better future. So that's Paul. He's got this definition of life that enables him to face anything. And that makes him incredibly resilient. He's not made of stone. He's not impervious to feeling. He's got deep emotions, but he's resilient. He feels things, he suffers, but he is being transformed. Not his circumstances, they're still saying the same. But his reaction to his circumstances is absolutely radical. It's different. Because his definition of life is to live as Christ. To die will be gain. Now that's Paul. What about you and me? What about you and me? Would you like to experience this kind of transformation? Would you like to be freed from the power of these giants in your life? Well, how do you know that God has a plan to bring good out of apparent chaos and evil and suffering? What evidence do you have of God's commitment to you, of God's sovereignty in the midst of failure, of God's ability to turn tragedy to triumph? Do you have any such evidence, friends? How can you know that to live is Christ and to die is gain? Well, the answer is you can know by looking at the place in history where God took the most spectacular failure and turned the situation upside down into the most spectacular victory the most 
extraordinary demonstration of weakness that was actually saving power. You can do that by looking at the cross of Jesus. You remember the old, old story? Jesus made the journey from heaven to earth to seek and save the lost. You and I were orphans, lost at the fall, running away, but he came for us to call us by name, like sheep that had gone astray. We'd each turn to our own ways, but the Lord God laid our iniquity on Jesus. He lived that perfect moral life. He didn't even know sin. We should have lived like that, but we never had. He died the death that we deserved under the condemnation for all our sins. But God took our sins and placed them on Jesus, who took our penalty. He, took, he drank the cup of God's judgment and wrath down to the dregs. And Jesus took our death sentence. And God accepted him instead of us. And Jesus then on the third day rose from death in a new body and took his crown as God's anointed appointed king the messiah and jesus ascended to the place of ultimate power to the throne room of heaven the right hand of god and he has made us many promises great and precious he said in my father's house are many rooms if it were not so i would have told you i'm going there to prepare a place for you and having done all of this jesus will bring his wandering sheep home in good time after they have served his name and fame in their time and generation. Now, because of that story, we know that Jesus has a plan for our lives and it's better than my plans and your plans. So what this means is that the apparently random, cruel and perverse twists and turns of life are not meaningless accidents. They're not fate working, but they are within the plan of God for history. The loving creator is at work to redeem his creation, to restore it and to rescue millions and millions of individual lives through the gospel. So to live is Christ, to know him and make him known. And the, the cruelty and the betrayal of other people or their, their callous disregard, it will hurt us, but it won't crush us because we know Jesus the one who loved us and gave himself for us. That puts envy and rivalry into perspective, doesn't it? To live is Christ. And the failure of our dreams, the discovery that we're never really going to be great, that we'll always be on the B team, that we will never get a star, that we may live a life of mediocrity, apparently. It will not defeat us because we can be set free from all that because to live is Christ. The greatest person, the greatest ambition, the greatest hero, the greatest lover. How can I serve his cause? He's called you to know him. He wants you to make him known. So hardship, betrayal, failure and death, these are not giants. We find that they are things that our good God allows into our lives as instruments. They test our heart. They reveal to us what we're really relying on. They're opportunities to be refined, to be made more like Jesus, to be made holier to show things about us that we wouldn't have known otherwise. Even these hardships and difficulties and failures and betrayal can be love letters from the king saying, trust me, invitations to deepen our trust in Jesus and change our definition of life. Because at the end of the day, you and I are either saying to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, or we're saying 
to me, to live is me, and to die is devastating loss. Which would it be for you? Who will you follow today? To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, we thank you for this letter, and we even dare to thank you for the circumstances that caused it, because you show us in Paul's imprisonment and in his heart and his perspective a definition of life that we really need. So we ask, change us today. Uh, make us more like Jesus, more in love with him, make him, him so much the object of our affections that we can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Amen.